Chapter Twenty Five of Ralph the Heir by Anthony Trollope. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mr. Griffinbottom. On Monday, the sixteenth of October, Sir Thomas Underwood went down to Percycross, and the first information given him was that Mr. Westmacott and Ontario Moggs had arrived on the Saturday and were already at work. Mr. Griffinbottom was expected early on the Tuesday. "'They've stolen a march on us, then,' said Sir Thomas to Mr. Trigger. "'Give em rope enough and they'll hang themselves,' replied the managing agent. "'There was Moggs spouting to them on his own hook on Saturday night, "'and Westmacott's chaps are ready to eat him, "'and he wanted to be doing it yesterday, Sunday.' only some of them got a hold of him and wouldn't let him loose moggs is a great card for us sir thomas there's nothing like one of them spouting fellows to overset the coach mr westmacott is fond of that too said sir thomas he understands he's used to it he does it in the proper place westmacott wasn't a bad member for the place wasn't perhaps quite free enough with his money but Westmacott was very decent. Sir Thomas could not help feeling that Trigger spoke of it as though he wished that the two old members might be returned. Ah, well, had it been possible, Mr. Trigger would have wished it. Mr. Trigger understood the borough, knew well the rocks before them, and would have wished it, although he had been so imperative with Mr. Griffinbottom as to the second conservative candidate. And now Mr. Griffinbottom had sent them a man who would throw all the fat in the fire by talking of purity of election. And Moggs has been making a fool of himself in another direction, said Trigger, thinking that no opportunity for giving a valuable hint should be lost. He's been telling the working men already that they'll be scoundrels and knaves if they take so much as a glass of beer without paying for it. "'Scoundrel is a strong word,' said Sir Thomas, "'but I like him for that. "'Percycross won't like him. "'Men would rather have all that left to their own feelings. "'They who want beer or money certainly won't thank him, "'and they who don't want it don't like to be suspected. "'Everyone will take it as addressed to his neighbor and not to himself. "'We are very fond of our neighbors here, Sir Thomas,' and that kind of thing won't go down. This was on the evening of the candidate's arrival, and the conversation was going on absolutely while Sir Thomas was eating his dinner. He had asked Mr. Trigger to join him, and Mr. Trigger had faintly alleged that he had dined at three, but he soon so far changed his mind as to be able to express an opinion that he could pick a bit, and he did pick a bit after which he drank the best part of a bottle of port, having assured Sir Thomas that the port at the Percy Standard was a sort of wine that one didn't get every day. And as he drank his port, he continued to pour in lessons of wisdom. Sir Thomas employed his mind the while in wondering when Mr. Trigger would go away, and forecasting whether Mr. Trigger would desire to drink port wine at the Percy Standard every evening during the process of canvassing. About nine o'clock the waiter announced that a few gentlemen below desired to see Sir Thomas, 
"'Our friends,' said Mr. Trigger. "'Just put chairs and bring a couple of bottles of port, John. "'I'm glad they're come, Sir Thomas, "'because it shows that they mean to take to you.' Up they were shown, Messrs. Spiveycomb, Spicer, Pyle, Rudy Lands, the bootmaker who has not yet been named, Pabsby, and seven or eight others. Sir Thomas shook hands with them all. He observed that Mr. Trigger was specially cordial in his treatment of Spicer, the mustard-maker, as to whose defection he had been so fearful, and consequence a certain power which Mr. Westmacott might have in the wholesale disposal of mustard. "'I hope you find yourself better,' said Mr. Pyle, opening the conversation. Sir Thomas assured his new friend that he was pretty well. "'Cause you seemed rather down on your luck when you was here before,' said Mr. Pyle. "'No need for that,' said Spicer, the man of mustard. "'Is there, Trigger?' Trigger sat a little apart with one bottle of port wine at his elbow and took no part in the conversation. He was aware that his opportunities were so great that the outside supporters ought to have their time. "'Any objection to this, Sir Thomas?' he said taking a cigar-case out of his pocket. Sir Thomas, who hated tobacco, of course gave permission. Trigger rang the bell, ordered cigars for the party, and then sat apart with his port wine. In ten minutes Sir Thomas hardly knew where he was, so dense was the cloud of smoke. "'Sir Thomas,' began Mr. Pabsby, "'if I could only clearly see my way—' "'You'll see it clear enough before nomination day,' said Mr. Pyle. "'Anyways, after election,' said a conservative grocer. Both these gentlemen belonged to the established church and delighted in snubbing Mr. Pabsby. Indeed, Mr. Pabsby had no business at this meeting, and so he had been told very plainly by one or two as he had joined them in the street. He explained, however, that his friend Sir Thomas had come to him the very first person in Percycross, and he carried his point in joining the party. But he was a mild man, and when he was interrupted he merely bided another opportunity. "'I hope, Sir Thomas, your mind is made up to do something for our trade,' said Mr. Rudy Lands. "'What's the matter with your trade?' said Spiveycomb, the paper-maker. "'Well, we ain't got no jobs in it, that's the matter,' said Mr. Pyle. "'As for jobs, what's the odds?' said a big and burly loud-mouthed tanner. "'All in us likes a good thing when it comes in our way. "'Stow that, and don't let's be told about jobs. "'Sir Thomas, here's your health, and I wish you at the top of the pole, "'that is, next to Mr. Griffinbottom.' "'Then they all drank to Sir Thomas's health.' Mr. Pabsby filling himself a bumper for the occasion. It was eleven before they went away, at which time Mr. Pabsby had three times got as far as a declaration of his wish to see things clearly. Further than this he could not get, but still he went away in perfect good humor. He would have another opportunity, as he took occasion to whisper when he shook hands with the candidate. Trigger stayed even yet for half an hour. "'Don't waste your time on that fellow Pabsby,' he said. "'No, I won't,' said Sir Thomas. "'And be very civil to old Pyle.' "'He doesn't seem disposed to return the compliment,' said Sir Thomas. 
"'But he doesn't want your interest in the borough,' said Trigger, with the air of a man who had great truths to teach. "'In electioneering, Sir Thomas, it's mostly the same as in other matters. Nothing's to be had for nothing. If you were a retail seller of boots from Manchester, old Pyle would be civil enough to you. You may snub Spicer as much as you please, because he'll expect to get something out of you.' "'He'll be very much deceived.' said Sir Thomas. I'm not too sure of that, said Trigger. Spicer knows what he's about pretty well. Then at last Mr. Trigger went, assuring Sir Thomas most enthusiastically that he would be with him before nine the next morning. Many distressing thoughts took possession of Sir Thomas as he lay in bed. He had made up his mind that he would in no way break the law, and he didn't know whether he had not broken it already by giving these people tobacco and wine, and yet it would have been impossible for him to have refused Mr. Trigger permission to order the supply. Even for the sake of the seat, even for the sake of his reputation, which was so much dearer to him than the seat, he could not have bidden guests who had come to him in his own room to go elsewhere if they required wine. It was a thing not to be done. And yet, for all he knew, Mr. Trigger might continue to order food and wine and beer and tobacco to be supplied ad libitum, and whenever he chose. How was he to put an end to it, otherwise than by throwing up the game and going back to London? That now would be gross ill-usage to the conservatives of Percycross, who by such a step would be left in the lurch without a candidate. And then was it to be expected that he should live for a week with Mr. Trigger, with no other relief than that which would be afforded by Messrs. Pyle, Spiveycomb, and company? Everything about him was reeking of tobacco. And then, when he sat down to breakfast at nine o'clock, there would be Mr. Trigger. The next morning he was out of bed at seven, and ordered his breakfast at eight sharp. He would steal a march on Trigger. He went out into the sitting-room, and there was Trigger, already seated in the armchair, studying the list of the voters of Percycross. Heavens, what a man! I thought I'd look in early, and they told me you were coming out, or I'd have just stepped into your room. Into his very bedroom! Sir Thomas shuddered as he heard the proposition. We've got a telegram from Griffinbottom, continued Trigger, and he won't be here till noon. We can't begin till he comes. Ah, then I can just write a few letters, said Sir Thomas. I wouldn't mind letters now if I was you. If you don't mind, we'll go and look up the parsons. There are four or five of them, and they like to be seen, not in the way of canvassing. They're all right, of course, and there's two of them won't leave a stone unturned in the outside hamlets. But they like to be seen, and their wives like it. Whereupon Mr. Trigger ordered breakfast, and ate it. Sir Thomas reminded himself that a fortnight was, after all, but a short duration of time. He might live through a fortnight, probably, and then, when Mr. Griffinbottom came, it would be shared between two. At noon he returned to the Percy Standard, very tired there to await the coming of Mr. Griffinbottom. Mr. Griffinbottom didn't come till three, and then bustled up into the sitting-room, 
which Sir Thomas had thought was his own, as though all Percycross belonged to him. During the last three hours supporters had been in and out continually, and Mr. Pabsby had made an ineffectual attempt or two to catch Sir Thomas alone. Trigger had been going up and down between the standard and the station. Various men, friends and supporters of Griffinbottom and Underwood, had been brought to him, who were paid agents, who were wealthy townsmen, who were canvassers and messengers, he did not know. There were bottles on the sideboard the whole time, Sir Thomas, in a speculative manner, endeavoring to realize to himself the individuality of this and that stranger, could only conceive that they who helped themselves were wealthy townsmen, and that they who waited till they were asked by others were paid canvassers and agents. But he knew nothing, and could only wish himself back in Southampton buildings. At last Mr. Griffinbottom, followed by a cloud of supporters, bustled into the room. Trigger at once introduced the two candidates. "'Very glad to meet you,' said Griffinbottom. "'So we're going to fight this little battle together. I remember you in the house, you know, and I dare say you remember me. I'm used to this kind of thing. I suppose you ain't. Well, Trigger, how are things looking? I suppose we'd better begin down Pump Lane. I know my way about the place, Honeywood, as well as if I was in my own bedroom.' and so I ought, Trigger. I suppose you've seen the inside of pretty nearly every house in Percycross, said Trigger. There's some I don't want to see the inside of any more, I can tell you that. How are these new householders going to vote? Betwixt and between, Mr. Griffinbottom. I never thought we should find much difference. It don't matter what rent a man pays, but what he does. I could tell you how nineteen out of twenty men here would vote if you'd tell me what they did, and who they were. What's to be done about talking to em? Tomorrow night we're to be in the town hall, Mr. Griffinbottom, and Thursday an open-air meeting with a balcony in the marketplace. All right, come along. Are you good at spinning yarns to them, Honeywood? I don't like it, if you mean that, said Sir Thomas. It's better than canvassing, by George. Anything is better than that. Come along, we may get Pump Lane and Petticoat Yard and those back alleys done before dinner. You've got cards, of course, Trigger? And the old accustomed electioneer led the way out to his work. Mr. Griffinbottom was a heavy, hale man, over sixty, somewhat inclined to be corpulent, with a red face and a look of assured impudence about him, which nothing could quell or diminish. The kind of life which he had led was one to which impudence was essentially necessary. He had done nothing for the world to justify him in assuming the airs of a great man, but still he could assume them, and many believed in him. He could boast neither birth nor talent nor wit, nor indeed wealth in the ordinary sense of the word. Though he had worked hard all his life at the business to which he belonged, he was a poorer man now than he had been thirty years ago. It had all gone in procuring him a seat in Parliament, and he had so much sense that he never complained. He had known what it was that he wanted, and what it was that he must pay for. He had paid for it, and had got it, 
and was in his fashion contented if he could only have continued to have it without paying for it again how great would have been the blessing but he was a man who knew that such blessings were not to be expected after the first feeling of disgust was over on the receipt of trigger's letter he put his collar to the work again and was prepared to draw his purse intending of course that the new candidate should bear as much as possible of this drain he knew well that there was a prospect before him of abject misery for life without parliament would be such to him there would be no salt left for him in the earth if he was ousted and yet no man could say why he should have cared to sit in parliament he rarely spoke and when he did no one listened to him he was anxious for no political measures he was a favorite with no section of a party he spent all his evenings at the house but it can hardly be imagined that those evenings were pleasantly spent but he rubbed his shoulders against the shoulders of great men and occasionally stood upon their staircases at any rate such as was the life it was his life and he had no time left to choose another he considered himself on this occasion pretty nearly sure to be elected he knew the borough and was sure but then there was that accursed system of petitioning which according to his ideas was un-english ungentlemanlike and unpatriotic a stand-up fight and if you're licked take it that was his idea of what an election should be sir thomas who only just remembered the appearance of the man in the house at once took an extravagant dislike to him it was abominable to him to be called underwood by a man who did not know him it was nauseous to him to be forced into close relations with a man who seemed to him to be rough and ill-mannered and judging from what he saw he gave his colleague credit for no good qualities now mr griffenbottom had good qualities he was possessed of pluck he was in the main good-natured and though he could resent an offence with ferocity he could forgive an offence with ease hit him hard and then have an end of it that was mr griffenbottom's mode of dealing with the offenders and the offences with which he came in contact in every house they entered griffenbottom was at home and sir thomas was a stranger of whom the inmates had barely heard the name griffenbottom was very good at canvassing the poorer classes he said not a word to them about politics but asked them all whether they didn't dislike that fellow gladstone who was one thing one day and another thing another day by god nobody knows what he is swore mr griffenbottom over and over again the women mostly said that they didn't know but they liked the blue blues always was gallanter nor the yellow said one of them they who expressed an opinion at all hoped that their husbands would vote for him as it do the most for him the big loaf that's what we want said one mother of many children taking sir thomas by the hand there were some who took advantage of the occasion to pour out their tales of daily griefs into the ears of their visitors to these griffenbottom was rather short and hard what we want my dear is your husband's vote and interest we'll hear all the rest another time sir thomas would have lingered and listened 
but Griffinbottom knew that 1,400 voters had to be visited in 10 days, and work as they would, they could not see 140 a day. Trigger explained it all to Sir Thomas. You can't work above seven hours, and you can't do 20 an hour. And much of the ground you must do twice over. If you stay to talk to them, you might as well be in London. Mr. Griffinbottom understands it so well, you'd better keep your eye on him. There could be no object in the world on which Sir Thomas was less desirous of keeping his eye. The men, who were much more difficult to find than the women, had generally less to say for themselves. Most of them understood at once what was wanted, and promised. For it must be understood that on this their first day the conservative brigade was moving among its firm friends. In Petticoat Yard lived papermakers in the employment of Mr. Spiveycomb, and in Pump Lane the majority of the inhabitants were employed by Mr. Spicer of the Mustard Works. The manufactories of both these men were visited, and there the voters were booked much quicker than at the rate of twenty an hour. Here and there a man would hold some peculiar opinion of his own. The permissive bill was asked for by an energetic teetotaler, and others, even in these Tory quarters, suggested the ballot. But they all, or nearly all of them, promised their votes. Now and again some sturdy fellow, seeming to be half ashamed of himself in opposing all those around him, would say shortly that he meant to vote for Moggs and pass on. "'You do, do you?' Sir Thomas heard Mr. Spicer say to one such man. "'Yes, I does,' said the man. Sir Thomas heard no more, but he felt how perilous was the position on which a candidate stood under the present law. As regarded Sir Thomas himself, he felt as the evening was coming on that he had hardly done his share of the work. Mr. Griffinbottom had canvassed, and he had walked behind. Every now and then he had attempted a little conversation, but in that he had been immediately pulled up by the conscientious and energetic Mr. Trigger. As for asking for votes, he hardly knew, when he had been carried back into the main street through a labyrinth of alleys at the back of Petticoat Yard, whether he had asked any man for his vote or not. With the booking of the votes he had, of course, nothing to do. There were three men with books, three other men to open the doors and show the way, and make suggestions on the expediency of going hither or thither. Sir Thomas would always have been last in the procession had there not been one silent, civil person whose duty it seemed to be to bring up the rear. If ever Sir Thomas lingered behind to speak to a poor woman, there was this silent, civil person lingering too. The influence of the silent, civil person was so strong that Sir Thomas could not linger much. As they came into the main street they encountered the opposition party, Mr. Westmacott, Ontario Moggs, and their supporters. "'I'll introduce you,' said Mr. Griffinbottom to his colleague. "'Come along. It's the thing to do.' And they went in the middle of the way. Poor Ontario was hanging behind, but holding up his head gallantly, and endeavouring to look as though he were equal to the occasion. Griffinbottom and Westmacott shook hands cordially, 
and complained with mutual sighs that household suffrage had made the work a deal harder than ever. "'And I'm only a week up from the gout,' said Griffinbottom. Then Sir Thomas and Westmacott were introduced, and at last Ontario was brought forward. He bowed and attempted to make a little speech, but nobody in one army or in the other seemed to care much for poor Ontario. He knew that it was so, but that mattered little to him. If he were destined to represent Percycross in Parliament, it must be by the free votes and unbiased political aspirations of the honest working men of the borough. So remembering, he stood aloof, stuck his hand into his breast, and held up his head something higher than before. Though the candidates had thus greeted each other at this chance meeting, the other parties in the contending armies had exhibited no courtesies. The weariness of Sir Thomas when this first day's canvas was over was so great that he was tempted to go to bed and ask for a bowl of gruel. Nothing kept him from doing so but amazement at the courage and endurance of Mr. Griffinbottom. "'We could get at a few of those chaps who were at the works if we went out at eight, said Griffinbottom. Trigger suggested that Mr. Griffinbottom would be very tired. Trigger himself was perhaps tired. "'Oh, tired,' said Griffinbottom. "'A man has to be tired at this work.' Sir Thomas perceived that Griffinbottom was at least ten years his senior, and that he was still almost lame from the gout. "'You'll be ready, Underwood?' said Griffinbottom. Sir Thomas felt himself bound to undertake whatever might be thought necessary. "'If we were at it day and night, it wouldn't be too much,' said Griffinbottom, as he prepared to amuse himself with one of the poll-books till dinner should be on the table." "'Didn't we see Jacob Pucky?' asked the energetic candidate, observing that the man's name wasn't marked. "'To be sure we did. I was speaking to him myself. He was one of those who didn't know till the day came. We know what that means, eh, Honeywood?' Sir Thomas wasn't quite sure that he did know, but he presumed that it meant something dishonest. Again Mr. Trigger dined with them, and as soon as ever their dinner was swallowed they were out again at their work, Sir Thomas being dragged from door to door while Griffinbottom asked for the votes. And this was to last yet for ten days more. End of chapter 25 Recording by Arnold Banner, Thurmond, North Carolina